cooking. We are live. Good, good to see you, Paul. Good to see you too, Shaheen. It is Shaheen, isn't it? It is Shaheen. 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 I'll get it right. I'll get it right. Sorry about that. Yeah, that's okay. Okay. Moment of silence and we'll go. Let's do it. I am delighted to be with Shaheen. Thank you so much for taking some time to be with me today. Thank you. My honor, man. And, you know, it's one of my teachers always told me that, look, when a man gives his name, you got to give it with the conviction of who you are. Because if that's the first thing that somebody hears, that is the only representation they have from you if they're not seeing you. So certainly you want to say your name with the conviction that you want someone else to carry. So when you asked me what my name was, I said Shaheen, the way I like to be heard. And you did a very nice pronunciation. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for being here, Shaheen, because it's, it's just a pleasure to have me talking to you today. So look, this is life, passion and business. And I know that you've had an interesting journey. Do you want to tell us about where it began for you and where it's led to? Yeah, let's talk about that. So I started when I was 15 years old. Well, <laughs> before that, we migrated to this country as immigrants. And I was just a, you know, a, a five-year-old kid coming into the United States uh, during Iran-Contra. And it was very difficult for us. You know, my dad worked really crap jobs. You know, my mom was just a, a housewife at that time, taking care of me and my brother. And we were here in this country, didn't speak the language. And just getting our asses kicked every day because we were Iranian. Mm. Very, very, very is, tough was place. This, to was this just before the Iran the, the war? The, the, Iran Contra, the, the, right at Iran Contra. So this was right after the fall of the Shah of Iran, which would have been 78, 79. We came wow. to the United States to Los Angeles roughly around 79, 80. <clears throat> and I did that for a while. And then I realized, man, this is bullshit. And I started to look around me. And my family was lucky. We managed to get a house in an up-and-coming neighborhood that wasn't affluent when we bought, but became affluent. This little enclave of Los Angeles called Pacific Palisades. And what had happened there was that all the neighbors, all my school friends, everybody around us started becoming very wealthy. Or I, I should say they were wealthy. We just were poor. And I started to realize that <clears throat> I wanted what they had. And I remember mm. it's funny because until I was like 15, I hadn't really gone to a restaurant. So like, I remember going over to like a friend, a school friend's house and him saying, Hey, uh, you know, my mom's, my mom and dad are out tonight, but just here, order what you want. Hey, whoa, wait a second. Wait, what do you mean? Order what I want? Yeah. yeah He's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Right. Here's you a menu. Not, you wouldn't know how to do it, would you? <laughs> wouldn't know how to do it. It was like a menu. I'm like, so, okay. I've had McDonald's before, but like, so this has, Burgers and pizza. So you're telling me I could ask for a burger and a pizza <laughs> and the man will bring it to me. And, you know, it was funny because we didn't have that experience. You know, we had a frozen pizza that my mom put in the oven for all four of us. And that's what we would eat. And we would finish every last piece of it because that's what we had for dinner. And that was it. And if there's any left, we'd be having that for breakfast. And that was it. We did not go to restaurants. We did not wear new clothes. My dad got a job at a dry cleaner's. And the way we would get clothing was that we would hope that cool looking people would come into the dry cleaners and forget to pay their bill or leave their clothing. And somehow that would trickle down to us. That's how we got clothes for school. And so by the time I was 15, I was like, this shit's for the birds, man. Like my dad's working his fingers to the bone. He's got no 
chance of climbing the ladder. Maybe 30 years from now, real estate will go up, but that's the only bet he's made that's won. And I'm looking around at the other people. My dad's like, look at Mr. So-and-so. And I'm like, yeah, dad. He's like, he has Mercedes. He has big house. Be like him. Go to school. Because that's when you're coming from the Middle East, the greatest ambition for any Asian parent, in fact, is that your child becomes a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, right. That's the cultural That's the cultural norm, isn't it? You have to Buddy, become it's, a yeah, You're right. It's the pinnacle of success. Now I would... I would be in a panic if my kid came to me at 15 and said, dad, I want to be a doctor or a lawyer. I would just shit my pants because <laughs> I, I have such higher expectations uh, for him, you know? Yeah. And I thought to myself, like, all right, Dr. Dr. Schmoozville over there, that guy, he went to school for 12 years. He has half a million dollars in school debt. That house that he's in, that's not his. That wife that he's got, she doesn't love him. And the car that he's got, that belongs to the bank. And he doesn't have, more importantly than any of this stuff, he doesn't have real wealth. Why? Because he doesn't have control of his time. He is selling his hours. So it doesn't matter how many hours he sells. It doesn't matter what it looks like from the outside. That is not a life I want to live. So I took off. I bailed. 15 years old. No money. No place to live. No friends. Cut off ties from my family. Wow. And I I took off. I said, I had my books. I was very fortunate that in those days, I was exposed to the writings of the great self-help gurus of the early days. I read Napoleon Hill. I read Ogmandino, you know, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich was, was so important to me. I read books after book after book. What sort of year was this? So we're talking, well, you know, I mean, between nine, but, you know, as soon as I could read, by the time I think I was like eight years old, nine years old, I was, I was checking out magazines and books. And I think by the time I was but 10 this, or this 11, is pre-millennium, isn't it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause that, cause there was no internet, no YouTube, no nothing. So right. in order to, in order to do personal development, it was books, self-help tapes. If you remember what tapes were, I mean, right. it was, yeah, you know, it was that sort of stuff tapes in the car. <laughs> You're right, mate. You know, I mean, I loved cassettes, you know, couldn't afford them much. So I managed to have my mom buy me a, a, one of those dual deck things. And when a friend was over, we would always put one in, I put the blank in and I'd try to copy it as much as possible. Um, and that's, that, those were the tapes that I listened to, but yeah, I mean, I listened to Tony Robbins. I watched, yeah. uh, I read his books. These were the kinds of things that I did in those days as a kid. So I knew that there was another world out there, that there was a way where I could live outside of the box, of, outside of the norm that was expected for me, but that I would have to hustle, that it wasn't going to be handed to me. My, my, my buddy, whose dad was a well-to-do businessman, he you know, could order from a menu every day of his life. He had servants. He, his dad had many cars and many houses. And you know, he was on his third wife. And you know, he, he had a trust fund. So he could just relax and do the foolish things that kids do. I couldn't afford that luxury. I needed to burn my ships and to get out there and to fight. I had to fight literally for my life. And so where does so, where does a 15-year-old go though? I mean, come on, what do you what do you do? 15, you're not legally entitled to do pretty much anything. So where did you go? My friend, I had a very rare skill, which was production 
of fake IDs. In the 80s, <laughs> buddy, Paul, it was so much easier. You would just, yeah, yeah. You had access to a color copy machine and, you know, a basic computer and a laminating machine, and you could make IDs for days. So I very quickly overnight became 18 year old Shaheen and managed to get myself odd jobs at weird places. I worked at copy shops, making photocopies. I worked at video stores, putting the fucking VHS tapes back alphabetically. Every time some asshole put dances with wolves in Z, I was the guy that fucking put that shit back for $3 an hour. And I did that. I went and I lived in abandoned buildings. I didn't have enough to pay rent. I slept in the backseat of old abandoned cars that I would find. And I would tape the pages of these great self-help books to the ceiling. I had a flashlight and every night I would get lost reading these pages over and over again, knowing that someday that I would find a way out of this and I would thrive. And not only that, I would succeed. So fast forward now to, you know, about being six months, eight months in, I met a mentor. I write about it in my book, Billion, how I became king of the throw pill cult. For any of your listeners, you guys can check out the podcast. The first chapter is free. My goal in life is really to share the story with people and hopefully I can inspire a few of you. Yeah. And what I did was that I started getting involved in the electronic music scene, the rave scene. And during this time, I would sneak into the clubs or I befriended the promoters and they would let me into the clubs. And I would go and I realized that the club started late and they would go till the morning. So if I was lucky, I could find a back room or behind the speakers was always a great spot because nobody ever went behind the speakers and I would lay out a little uh, sleeping bag or something and I could just sleep very quietly, very comfortably until the morning time. And I'd have some time to hang out, see some people, listen to some music, have a good time. And then in the morning, wake up and live my best life. And everybody would be like, hey, this guy's been here the whole night. This is awesome. I'd be the life of the party. Well, somewhere along the way, I thought, fuck, man, I'm going to need some money. I mean, eating yeah. relish and ketchup at hot dog stands is fun for a little while, but it gets old really fucking quick. Yeah. So I was like, you know, I, I'd like to have that kind of money and I better start figuring this shit out. I mean, I am at the ripe old age of 15 heading directly towards <laughs> 16. I need to find fame and fortune. So I started looking around thinking to myself, how is money being made? And I looked at the promoters. I even tried throwing a couple clubs myself somehow. And I realized the promoters don't make any money. They're always running away from people because somehow something always happens where they don't make money. The buildings are broken into usually during in those days in the 90s. So, you know, the, the warehouses were borrowed, quote unquote. So yep. then what would it be? Well, it's got to be the DJs. Nope. DJs are the brokest ass people on earth in those days. They would be standing around. People would promise them all kinds of things, Paul. They would never get paid. So who do you think it was, Paul, who was making the dollars in those days? I have no idea. I'm curious. Yes, who was did. it? It was the drug dealers. Ah. They were running the clubs. They were selling one drug in particular, very famous in your country. Exiting. Ecstasy. Ecstasy. MDMA. Methyl dioxymethamphetamine, molly, whatever you want to call it these days. So I was at the right place at the right time, not for the reasons that you may think. The supply of ecstasy, which was produced by two big parties in the UK and the Netherlands, had dried up. 
The United States had put a block on it. The EU, which was, I believe, recently formed in those days, had, had put a big amount of effort and energy to stop that stuff from flowing. And the drug dealers in the States were out of supply. Well, I thought to myself, man, if I could just get into that business, I could do pretty well for myself. Those guys drive nice cars. They have beautiful girls. They, they're relaxed. You know, they're the life of the party. Everyone loves them. They have plenty of cash. They're always ordering sushi and nice food. I want to be like that. And then I realized from my earlier escapades in elementary school that I was really bad at crime. <laughs> and I thought to myself, dude, there's a lot of guys out there. You ever watch these, like you watch these reality shows and you hear the news and the guy's just about to get away. And then he fucks up because he tells like 10 people. And then, you know, he gets busted because he told the girlfriend and the girlfriend's name. Yeah. Like those people are bad at crime. They have no business doing crime. And fortunately for me, I had the foresight to know that I would be terrible at crime. So I decided, well, that's not going to work. And I had a light bulb moment. I thought to myself, what if... I could make something that was herbal, that was natural, that was legal, that did similar things to what ecstasy could do without the side effects, and that I could not get in trouble for. What if that could happen? And so um, that's what I did. I somehow, by hook or by crook, figured out a way to create a... Uh, supplement at the time. It wasn't a drug, a pill that did that. And I, you know, I managed to get myself a girlfriend in those days. It wasn't very hard for any of you guys who think you need money to get a girlfriend. Completely not true. And I was as broke as could be. And I had a, a couple girlfriends going in those days. And she let me use her kitchen when her dad was out and we would go into the bathtub and I'd make it in the kitchen and the bathtub and we'd be making these balls of goo until I got it to the point where I could put it in a little baggie and grabbed some courage, Paul. And I walked into the club. I looked at the biggest, baddest drug dealer. And I said, buddy, sell this. I'll make you a millionaire. And he said, fuck off, kid. I'm already a millionaire. And I looked at him and I said, I know, but millions aren't going to help you when you're in jail. And he said, what? Are you a cop? What the fuck? Is and I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Relax. He looked like he was about to strangle me. I said, here's your choices for tonight. You can sell nothing. You can sell junk because I know you don't have any ecstasy. Or you can try this. People are going to love it. They're going to love you. You're going to make a bunch of money. I didn't know what I was saying. I was saying anything I could. And if it doesn't sell or you have any problems, come find me. And it was a little bit of a challenge to his ego. And he looks at me and he goes, all right, come on then. And I gave him the bags. I took off for an hour. I came back. And he said, hey, kid, you. And I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm a fucking dead man. Like this was the most cockamamie idea you've ever had, Shaheen. This was the worst idea. And he walks up to me, looks at me cold in the eyes and says, kid, how soon can you get me more? <laughs> and that was it. It went from one. But how did you, how did you design, design this though? I mean, you're, you're, you're 16. How did you work out how to make this? That's a really good question. And my answer to that is I was foolish enough to not know that I could fail. I was foolish enough to not know that I could fail. And the reason why I say that is because in those days, I was young. I was reckless. I had nothing to lose. Not only that, nobody could tell me 
anything different than what I believed. It's what Walter Isaacson talks about in his seminal book about Steve Jobs, where he says that Steve Jobs would walk into a room and Steve Jobs would say, all right, guys, we're going to need to uh, have this phone. We're going to need the phone with uh, no buttons at all. And I'm going to need it uh, absolutely to work on the latest operating system. And they would say, okay, great, Mr. Jobs. You know, we could probably see that for summer of 2001, 2002. And he'd say, that's cute. You've got till this afternoon to show me plans for how you're going to make it work. <clears throat> and by the time, and all these people who thought they were going to do it 10 years later, as Steve Jobs walked out, realized that, holy shit, what did we just agree to do? And somehow by hook or by crook, they made it happen. Why? It was because of his reality distortion field, because of his invincibility, because he wouldn't take shit, because he believed in his heart of heart that not only could this happen, that it was going to happen. And mm. he acted as if that was going to happen. And in those days, Paul, that was me. I would walk into a store in Chinatown and I'd be like, give me a hundred dollars in herbs. And the guy would be like, okay, it's a hundred dollars plus tax. And I'd say, great. I'd love to pay you that. As soon as I sell this, I'm going to bring it. And I could have it for you next week. How's Wednesday? Not only that, I'll give you $20 interest because I can't give you the money now. And they would see me, they would smell it on me. They would see that I wasn't begging. I wasn't asking. I was relentless and they would never get rid of me until I got what I wanted. So People agreed. People, people wanted to help me because they saw not desperation, but drive. How, how much of this stuff did you end up making? So we were making them for 25 cents. We were selling them for $20. Oh, okay. Wow. Margin. <laughs> nice margins. And let me give you what happened next. So it went from a few drug dealers to a few thousand drug dealers. A lot of them became legitimized. They went on the straight and narrow, starting distributorships, starting retail stores, selling my product all over the place. Well, what happened after that is we got into brick and mortar. I was doing interviews on all the mainstream channels. We got into over 30,000 stores. We had our own stores. We had a franchise store right on Melrose Boulevard in Hollywood in California. And we were selling millions I, or so I thought until one day I walked into my office in Venice Beach. I was this long-haired kid that wouldn't take no for a reason. I probably hadn't had a good night's sleep since that first night with the selling it to the drug dealer in the club. And the news broke that we had crossed the billion-dollar mark. Pre-internet, pre-Facebook, pre-social media, pre-mobile phone, we had broken a million, excuse me, a billion dollars. We had broken a billion dollars in revenue and the just, news was just, out. Just for the sake, just a reminder, is a billion is a thousand million or is it a million million? That's right. That's right. It's a thousand million. It's a thousand now, million. Yes. Now I know this and I'll <laughs> tell you why, because in that moment, I, I remember this moment very distinctly. I had a panic attack. Not because I didn't know that we had made a billion, but Paul, it was because I didn't know how much a fucking billion dollars was. The same question I mean, you just I asked. I mean, yeah, but it is, you know, like, you know, governments talk about billion dollars here and billion dollars there. And I think very few people realize how big that number is. And, and I, I sat down one day on one of myself, so I converted it into hours. And it's like, it's something like 2000 years or something in hours. It's a lot. 
It's a lot. Yeah. I, 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 but at this time, I'm having a panic attack. I'm like, yeah. holy fucking shit. They wanted me on every TV station, CNN, Nightline with Sam Donaldson, Montel Williams, all the great talk show hosts. Newsweek was at our door. I had a big feature in Details Magazine, uh, London Observer, all the publications wanted to have us on and did have us on. And I calmed down. And from there on out, it was a wild ride. That was the beginning was when we broke a billion dollars in revenue. The question for me is how did you stay sane and not die from, you know, because you're young. How did you not drink yourself into stupidity or take all the wrong substances or do all sorts of silly, silly shit and kill yourself? Now, Paul, you're making a very interesting observation, but it's an assumption that I'm sane. Oh, okay. (laughs) My wife would definitely argue with that point. What I would tell you is this. I did not touch a drug of any kind until I was well into my 20s. And even then, it was only exploratory exploratory, uh, plant medicines like fungi and ayahuasca and those types Mm. of things before they became popular, before every influencer was going down to Peru to do it. I was never one to seek the hedonistic pleasures of substance. Not that I have any judgment on it, not that I think it's right or wrong. I just believe that it wouldn't make me a better person, nor would it improve my focus in business. And my focus was creating the biggest supplement company in the world and doing what Steve Jobs very aptly called putting a dent in the universe. And I wasn't going to do that if I was high on junk or had some white powder oozing out my nose or Mm. being beholden to something else. I didn't want to be some drugs bitch. I didn't want to be reliant on some substance for my greatness. And I wanted to feel and experience life for what it was. I wanted to savor every drop. And you can't do that when you're numb. I know people Mm. who drink and do drugs. And I've got friends who do that. And I, I I respect that. But to this day, I still don't drink. I'll have a glass of wine with dinner. People will see me there. Oh, you didn't drink. Oh, look at that. It's a, I'm like, yeah, it's a, it's a $200 bottle of uh, a Malbec that somebody brought to the table. I'll have a glass with my steak. That's fine. But I don't believe in using drugs hedonistically, recreationally for myself, because I don't feel that it makes me a better person in general. I always find the first glass of wine is gorgeous. The second glass of wine never tastes as good as the first. You could say the same about the first and second wife. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't know. I've only got one. (laughs) Myself as well. But I thought it would be a good joke to make for some reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good joke. So so the, the, I mean, you were obviously, were you driven by, what were you driven by? Because I mean, you would obviously, I'm, I'm, there's so many questions popping out my mouth. I can't get them all out at the same time. So you must have been driven by money or driven by something else. Buddy, I had a huge chip on my shoulder, <clears throat> which came from being beaten down. We came, mm. just look, in Iran, I was top of the heap, man. I, I, we, we were there until I was five. I had my own little gang. Five years old in Iran, they would let us out in the streets. Iran, by the way, one of the safest places in the world. Yes. In the world, in the world. One of the safest places in the world for children 
you can walk outside, you can go, everybody loves children, the world is happy. There is very little crime in comparison to the United States or Europe or other countries. You don't have weird like pedos and blue vans running around there. It just doesn't happen. There's the the neighbors look out for each other. You know, your neighbors, you know, your community. And it's a really great area for that. So I would leave at five years old. We would go out and hang out with my little gang and do all our little things as as kids. And we come back. I was top of the heap. It was fantastic. It was spectacular. And then we came to the United States and I wasn't a second class citizen. I was a third class citizen. I was at the bottom of the heap. We were a minority that was highly discriminated against. And like I said, I got the shit kicked out of me every day. And when I looked at the possibilities for advancement, I looked at the possibilities for me coming up in life and the people who had come before me, it didn't look good, buddy. It didn't look good. The future looked grim. And I told myself, I said, hey, man, that's not for me. I love people. I love things. I love learning new things and going to places and trying different kinds of foods and experiences. And like, if I want to be relegated to a very narrow band of life and boxed into exactly where they want me to be, I'm fucked. So I couldn't let that happen. That was my determination. And then I saw my dad. I saw how he was struggling every day, how he was struggling to, to make money, how he couldn't buy us all the stuff that we wanted. And it was fine. You know, he worked very hard to make sure that we never wanted for anything. We were never really hungry. But it, in general, we were at the bare minimum. And I didn't want that. I wanted to live the optimal life, which is why now I focus most of my time, most of my energy, teaching people and training people how to sell on the Amazon platform and how to create that kind of a lifestyle where they no longer have to sell their fucking hours because it's the greatest crime ever put on any person that you become held to having sell your hours for money. It is such an injustice. And what's even more so is that you could have gotten out of it and you didn't. Well, we've got this thing about work, haven't we? And, and work has to be hard because the two things very rarely go. So, so, you know, work never comes out the word hard to it, does it really? In terms of being good at work, you have to work hard. Yeah, that is right. So, yeah. you know, you've got that kind of Protestant work ethic of, hey, we've got to work hard. I teach my students to work smarter. We mm. hire you know, my course, I've got this course called Amazon Mastery, which by the way, for, for anybody listening to your life, passion and business, Paul, all, all, it's normally 200 bucks. I'm going to give that for free. So just have them reach out. We'll include a link. It's fbasellercourse.com or go to shaheenshayan.com. Okay. We'll touch those links. Yeah. We'll touch those links. Towards the end. Yeah. We'll, we'll make sure we get all those links. Yeah. Yeah. That's and if you guys just reach out and say, you heard it on Paul Harvey, we'll, 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 we'll give you the class for free. So you don't, you so don't have to pay for it. What is it that's driving you though? Cause I mean, like now, I mean, all right. So what happened? You ended up this billion dollar company. Yeah. Did you, did you sell it? Did you keep it? What'd you do? Um, during those days, uh, what happened was, was that the company actually came, uh, came across a lot of government scrutiny, Paul. And mm. so the government <clears throat> was being lobbied, allegedly, by pharma companies that had pills that made your erectile dysfunction go away. Mm. And here you have this 15-year-old Iranian kid selling billions of dollars, billions of dollars of supplements with 
absolutely no government regulation. Yep. So I had Paul, wondered when that might might come up, come up, you know, because it's a not a food supplement, but it's a supplement. It, it's a supplement. Yeah, Paul. I apologize. Can can we take a brief two minute? break. Yes. Would that be something that's okay? That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. And let me pause. I'm not sure where we were. I should have made a note. You were asking me how I did that. Oh, what happened? I know what happened, of course. Yes. Because you, you, you start turning a billion dollars on, on herbs, then people are going to start looking at those herbs, aren't they? That's right. That's what <clears> happened. <throat> and we had the government that started coming after us. I was this little rebellious kid, still had a chip on my shoulder and I did not settle with the government. What I said was, come and fucking get me. And they did. What they did was they banned some of our ingredients. They banned different product types. And they would be doing a little bit of cat and mouse with us. So I would come up with a new formula. They would ban it. I would go on the news. They'd say, hey, so Shaheen, we heard they banned your famous ingredient. What's next? And I'd say, like, we're using ingredient B. And then next week we'd hear the government just banned ingredient B. And I'd be like, that's okay, because we're on to C. And after a while, it got a little bit tiring and it got a little bit exhaustive doing that all the time. So we moved on and I moved on to inventing the forerunner for what is now the vape, uh, digital vaporization. I patented it. I created a company where we created the first electronic digital vaporizer had several patents on it. I wrote the book on it and that company went public and I exited that company. And then I moved on, Paul, to selling on the Amazon platform. And that's actually a really cool story how that happened. So I was thinking about what I was going to sell next. And I was thinking, hey man, I'm going to sell brain supplements because we just had my uh, kid who's now seven years old and I thought to myself, oh man, you know, like I'm slipping a little bit during the days. Like my mental focus isn't where it was when I was in my twenties. You know how, <clears throat> how, that, how that goes. Yeah, I do. So you went into nootropics. Went into nootropics, invented this pill called Accelerol, which really is the, the best nootropic known to man. I mean, it was really good stuff. And I thought- Nootropics, right, were the, they, that's what NZT was based on the film, wasn't it? That's right. what that- Funny, funny story about that was that Bradley Cooper was in my house in Venice and we were partying and I didn't know anything about, you know, that he was, you know, uh, going to be a famous actor. This was before he was in that movie. And I went on to making this brain supplement. He went on and he made that movie some years before. And I just watched that movie, you know, after I had come up with our supplement. So it was, it was, it was an interesting series of events, kind of the universe lining up to tell you what you're supposed to be doing. But you know, we came out with Accelerol and I was like, all right, how am I going to sell this thing? And then we got a message from somebody. And these were the days where you could email Jeff Bezos, Jeff at amazon.com. I hope I'm not getting, getting in trouble for giving that away. <laughs> He's not there anymore anyways, or not in this old capacity, but I would use that email and we would get a hold of Jeff Bezos and he would respond. And so Bezos responded and, you know, I think somebody from his team let us know that they're opening up their platform to allow third-party sellers, people like you and me, normal people to sell on the Amazon platform before it was just books and stuff that Amazon mm. sold, CDs, DVDs, those kinds of things. So I thought, hey, why don't I list this? So I listed it on there, went to sleep, didn't think much of it, did nothing else, woke up in the morning and I looked and I'm like, that can't be right. 
we had thousands of orders. I'm like, how is that possible? And I decided right there and then that that was going to be the future moving forward. And that was what I was going to spend my time, my focus, my energy on. And that's what I did. So we've been since 2009, selling on the Amazon platform, learning how to perfect it, learning how to navigate their platform and tell a story. And, and what I do now is I teach people, you know, it's not right for everybody, but for those who can dedicate a couple hours a day, who are interested in not selling their hours, who are interested in building the right foundation where they're creating recurring revenue, it may be just the ticket. And we're just getting started on Amazon, by the way. So, I mean, you obviously must have created enough revenue, enough resource that you don't actually have to do any of this stuff. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that. So, pre I mean, like, how, yeah, how do you? How do you stay motivated? What's the, what are you passionate about now? And how do you stay motivated with it all? So, you may argue with this. I think the passion is good for hobbies and the rest of it is bullshit. I don't think, and I tell this to people often, your passion need not be your business. Hmm, we look I agree. at great people throughout history. You look at Andrew Carnegie, you look at all the, all the people in, in the past that have been successful. Very few of them were passionate about their business and what actually made them money. And similarly, I encourage people to not follow their passion. I think it's a fatal mistake. I think instead, you keep your passion for your hobbies and you have to have things that you're excited about and that you're passionate about and that are fun, but you work using systems and algorithms. And that's what people like Steve Jobs, people like Jeff Bezos knew, or Jeff Bezos still alive knows. And that's why he's the richest man in the world. You know, you think he's passionate about selling books? Not really. You think he's passionate about retail sales? Not really. What but I he suspect he's passionate about the systems and the organization and the process. That's right. That's right. He's also passionate about space travel and dating yeah. Latina newscasters. But those aren't things that are part of his core business. Hmm. So similarly, yes, I am passionate about systems. And right now, more than anything, I'm passionate about inspiring people, inspiring people to start their own businesses. When I have one of my students tell me, dude, I, I quit my job. I've been working from home and I thought I was never going to make more money than my job. And now I'm making 15, 20, $30,000 a month selling on Amazon. And I travel with my family. That's, that's the most exciting thing for me to hear because mm. my lifestyle pretty much as I travel with my family, you're right. I don't need to work anymore, but I do, but it doesn't feel like work because I'm doing what I want, when I want, with who I want. And I tell people this all the time, please. Well, I have this theory and it's only a theory, I'm still exploring it, is that human beings need to occupy their time properly, constructively. Yeah. I, I, I suspect if you don't, you end up like lots of the Kings of England did, just size of bloody house, you know, and couldn't get on a horse anymore because they, their days were just one prolonged process of eating, drinking, womenizing, possibly if they could still do it, you know, and it's, you know, that's what happens. You just don't do anything. You just wait from one meal to the next. Now, my friend, you are talking about a topic that's very close to my heart. 
I love the story of the Kings of England and what most people don't know, and this is to your credit. So let me, let me start it by this way and I'll tell you what most people don't know about that story. So I have a quote that I sometimes open up. I spoke to 10,000 people in South Africa. I opened with this quote and it shocks younger people because we live in a world where confrontation is avoided. It's this, when you are sleeping, your enemies are planning your demise. That's it. Why, why do I want people to write this down and put it where they can see it every morning? Because it is true. Because no matter how good you are, there's somebody who's better. No matter how smart you are, there's someone who's smarter. How good looking you are, there's someone better looking. There's someone who'll hustle more than you. There's someone who's hungrier than you. And if you let them, they will eat your lunch. It's the nature of the world. It's the nature of predatory world. Well, you go, well, the kings of England ruled for however many years. Check your history. That entire country was run by the Vikings that took over, installed puppet kings where it suited them, and ran it for close to 900 plus years. A huge amount of time in history. If we look at, even now, we look at like civil rights. That was like Right, like 100 years ago, less than 100 years ago, we look at Gandhi. When was Gandhi? In the 1950s, right? Maybe 1930s, I don't know, whenever that was. We're talking 110 years ago, something like that. You're talking these people ruled one of arguably the most powerful countries in the world for close to 900 years, maybe longer in some cases. How did they do it? They were hungry. They understood that the kings of England, like you're saying, were getting fat and sleeping. And they knew they were, they were the Norsemen. They knew that they could come and some of them would die, but ultimately that they would run amok because the competition was weak. And similarly, what we teach on the Amazon platform is that there is a lot of competition there. And people oftentimes are coming to me saying, hey man, isn't Amazon over? Isn't this market oversaturated? Isn't this you know, too many players in the game? And the fact is, Paul, that like I said, we are just starting. There's so many people out there. And what we teach is that you can go in and find a niche, the riches are in the niches, and you can dominate that niche by finding the weakness of your opponents, similar to the Vikings coming in and finding the kings of England, you can find the weakness and exploit it. And then you tell a better story and you can dominate and you can win in a very big way. Impressive. I love the way you weave the story to get there. Thank you for that. It's very, very impressive. So clearly passion is not for you. I, I, I can hear what you say about it, about passion and work. And I think it depends on it. It, it depends on the individual. I think some people, for some people, being passionate in their job works for them. And for some people, it doesn't. And I think that's just, but we, we all do life our own way. That's, that's how it works, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I generally am talking to young entrepreneurs. So I think my advice likely falls on young entrepreneurs. It's a guy named Scott Adams. And he's the... <clears throat> artist who draws the comic book Dilbert, which is probably the most successful comic of mm. all time. 
And Scott has recently gained a lot of publicity from his books. He wrote a book called Win Bigly. He also wrote another book uh, called something like How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big, something, something to that extent. Mm. And he talks about how passion is something that wealthy people tell people that are not wealthy to make them sound humble. So when they're asked the question, hey, man, how did you do it? It's not politically correct to say, you know what, bud? It's just that I'm a little bit smarter than you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, 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 or you know what? It's like I hustled, I networked. And I outsmarted the guy who was just underneath me, which is how I got to where I am and how I stay where I am, right? Or by ruthlessness, cunning, and relentlessness, by crushing my enemies in any way that I could. These are things that are not said, but we all know they are the case. Bezos, Jeff Bezos, the CEO, the former CEO of Amazon, the founder of Amazon, people see him as this little guy this little nerd with his hair combed to the side, driving a Honda, sitting in the office with the spray painted sign behind him, a door and some cinder block and going, it's so funny, I'm selling books. That's not who this guy is. This guy was a beast. He was an alpha leader from the start. That was the mask he was wearing, the image he was projecting to people for whatever his reasons may have been. And I've got some ideas about that. But Bezos came through D.H. Hutton one of the big investment banks, venture capital firms on the planet. He had mm -hmm. access to cheap money from Wall Street. He had access to all of the top execs. He had access to algorithms and systems and programmers and all these resources. And he came in, he was ready to fucking die. He burned his ships and he was gonna win no matter what it took. And when people look at him, they just see these little nerd videos and they're like, oh, look at that guy. He's like this nerdy guy. He doesn't really have very much, you know, he's got no game. He's this, no, that guy is the most alpha of us all. And then you see the success that he's reached. You see him now and he's all, you know, pumped up and, you know, looking good. And he's got, you know, the pretty girlfriend and the, you know, the world's richest man. And you're like, oh shit, that fucking dude. Right. But when you ask a guy like that, or you ask a guy like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, or you ask any of these guys and you say, hey, man, how, how are you making these billions? The socially appropriate answer is, you know, buddy, you just got to be passionate. But the fact is for young kids, you ask them, you know, teenagers, people in their 20s, you ask them, what are you passionate? Well, I'm passionate about TikTok and dating pretty girls and drinking booze. Well, that's going to get you fuck all, man. You know, why don't, why don't you, why don't you think about something that you're not passionate about now? Pa like I said, passion is, is important, but I believe, especially for startup entrepreneurs, people starting in the business world, that it should be a side effect, not the goal, not the purpose of what you're doing. I can see, I can see where you're coming from. And I, and I, and like, I'm inclined to agree. I think it's about drive. And if passion drives you in the right direction, then it's fine. I mean, I quite like the ikigai sense of it, where 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 they all meet, where all of the what the world needs, what you're good at, what you enjoy, what all those things meet in the middle. Yeah, that's right. Mm. You know, there's a middle ground, and you know, you understand. <clears throat> you know, when I was in my twenties, everything was black or white. You're either with me or against me, friend or foe. Mm. And you know, so, I, did, did, I have to ask the question: Does your father regret you didn't become a doctor? I don't know. That's a good question. I wonder. I'll, I'll ask him. I'll let you know. 
he must be very impressed that you didn't become a doctor i'm sure probably but it's, it's <laughs> a lot harder to brag about your son uh i think it might be easier to brag about your son becoming a doctor it's much more understood you know i think i i go over people's heads a lot particularly in my mm. own culture and society and that's fine and that's fine you know, people don't really want, once you step outside of what one of my old teachers called TikTok, once you step outside of that kind of like, you know, beep, 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 you won't register for some people. Some people won't understand. Like some people won't understand how you get up and run a marathon every day. It's just so outside of their, of their understanding that you cease to, <clears throat> you cease to be in their, in their periphery even. And people I feel, have an expectation that we go to work and we trade our time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where, you know, humility comes in. That's where being kind to people, being a generous human being, just being a good person in general comes in because I've got friends who have no money and are broke as you can imagine. And I've got friends that are billionaires and I treat them all with the same amount of love, compassion, respect. And I have great times with them all because I'm interested in them as people and in, in them as humans and just sharing in this human experience with them. So that's okay. You know, but the, the, and, and if you want, we could, we could even end with this. I really feel that the greatest way to bring people up in life, the greatest way to share this light that you have inside yourself with other people is really, truly, genuinely going to be by bringing yourself up first. And you can't do that if you're broke. You have to do that by empowering yourself, by getting yourself in a position where you have the ultimate luxury. And it's not money, it's time. Being able to do what you and I were talking about, Paul, doing what you want with who you want, when you want. It's what a friend of mine calls fuck you money. When you have fuck you money, you could look at anybody that you want to, it doesn't matter. And you can say, fuck off, man. And you can say that without any impact to your life at all whatsoever. And when you can do that, when you have that fuck you money, you can now go empower other people to kind of live that same kind of life, that life of freedom, where you can really then start to discover what your passion is. What things are you into? What things do you love doing? Maybe you'll be into philanthropy. Maybe you'll be into art. Maybe you'll be into writing. And you can do those things with a freedom that allows you to do that. Mm. So I have to get through my questions because it's like been a fantastic conversation, but we'll just go through them. But I think the answers are obvious. How do you define success? Being able to do what you want with who you want, when you want. Yeah. Contribution. What do you think is contribution for you? For me, my contribution is telling my story, sharing my story, inspiring mm -hmm. people, inspiring people to start businesses where they don't have to sell their hours. How do you contribute to yourself? Oh, dude, I do so much stuff. My wife goes absolutely batty at the <laughs> sheer amount of stuff that I do. I'm huge into biohacking. I wake up in the morning, I do a cold dip. I do a far infrared sauna. I do red light therapy. I take supplements. I'm really big into self-care and I really do try to look after my physical organism because we all know health is wealth and nothing moves forward until your health is there. No, I agree with you. And as a runner, I can fully, fully accept that one. I, I do everything, everything I can to maintain this body. Because uh, the trouble is you get old and bits drop off. So you really do have to look after it. That's true. <laughs> and yet to meet somebody who's getting younger. 
but we're working so, on it. So what's the one question? No, what's the one question you'd like people to ask you? That I'd like you to ask me. Hmm. Um, well, I think we've covered a lot, but you can ask me where people can find me. Okay, that's the next question. That that is the next question we get to. So, how do people find you, and what are they? What you know? What can you what can you offer? What are you giving them? Yeah. So we have an Amazon Mastery Mastermind and course where we offer coaching and training on how you can start an Amazon business from anywhere in the world. I've got students from Saudi Arabia, students from the UK, students from Australia, South Africa, and we teach them how to start these businesses. It's very easy to do. It's not very expensive. I've got a one hour course that everybody has to take first. It's absolutely free of charge. And it's normally 200 bucks, but because you're, you guys came through Paul, if you just mentioned Paul's show, Life, Passion, and Business, Exploring the Midlife Adventure with Paul Harvey, we will include that to you for free. So get us on shaheenshayan.com, www.shaheenshayen.com. Go to the course link, reach out to me, my contacts on there. If I can have a phone call with you, if I can inspire you, help you on your journey in any way, I'm there to do that. We also have a podcast, Paul, called Hack and Grow Rich. We're up to, I believe, about 65,000 subscribers right now. We've got some great guests, including Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari, Keith Ferrazzi, Never Eat Alone, Chris Voss, the FBI hostage negotiator, Jay Samet, the author of Future Proof You, Dr. Michael Bruce, America's Sleep Doctor. And we have amazing conversations with these guys. So please subscribe, like, uh, catch us on uh, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere where podcasts are found, it's Hack and Grow Rich. And my book, which is coming out in August, if you guys are interested more in the herbal ecstasy story and how I created a billion dollars while still a teen, make sure to check out Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult, available anywhere where you find books or listen to the first chapter for free on any of the podcast channels like Spotify. Fantastic. Well, all those links will be available at lifepassionandbusiness.com. So do check it out there or follow it up. I think it's a, an amazing story. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing the story and uh, being so generous with your time. No, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. I, Final I was... question I have yeah. for you, which I have to have, ask everybody, what's the meaning of life for you? 43. We're 46. I forget. Didn't you see? It Jack was 42. Or... It was 42, but 42. It's, been, it's been done a few times out of that number. Ah, <laughs> so that's a really good question. It was funny. You know, there's a period of time where we would just walk up to random people and ask them that. And the answers were always amazing because everybody always does the second take. And then the next thing out of their mouth definitely is cause for reflection. I think for me, it, it's A, to not take other people's shit. So first and foremost, to be able to tell people to fuck off when it's necessary. Two, to be able to inspire other people to do the same. Three, to create wealth and abundance in your life to the point where you can take care of and inspire other people to live the life that they deserve. And more importantly than any of that stuff, now, forever, always is family first. Nothing more important than family. Shaheen, thank you so much. It has been an utter joy to hear your story and to share this time with you. Thank you. My honor, Paul. Thank you so much. All the best.